Amen and amen. Get your Bibles and open to Ephesians chapter 4. We're looking today at verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. This is the inspired Word of God. May He drive these truths deep into our hearts that we may obey them willingly and with great joy. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day again. We're so grateful that in your wisdom you have given us the Lord's day to come to worship you, your Son, and your Holy Spirit. And now as we take this time in our worship service to proclaim your word. May you open our hearts to the truth that is here. Open my mouth that I may proclaim it. Secure it, Lord, for us, that we may live it this week. We love you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeff mentioned this movie a few weeks ago, and we've now been watching it also, probably because he mentioned it, the series uh, A Band of Brothers. It deals with uh, Easy Company, a company of soldiers who are airborne soldiers who drop in on Normandy on that great, that great day of battle. And what's interesting about this series is that before each episode, they have kind of a little documentaries where they're interviewing actual soldiers of Easy Company, these men now in their 80s, 90s, some of them, talking about that battle, talking about their time there of service. And I'm struck as I was watching it last night, watching one episode, that these men have a common enemy, a common mission, They have a common commander. And one of the gentlemen, as he's talking about going in and jumping out of this airplane, right? The joke, my my father-in-law was 82nd Airborne. He would often make jokes about his job was to jump out of perfectly good airplanes, right? And he was also a jump master who was the guy who said, who was the guy who says, go, 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 go. And I asked him one time, you know, Gunther, what if a guy didn't go? He says, well, then he got my number 10 boot. Go! (laughs) All right. 
But jumping out of a plane and into battle, this one gentleman says, you know, were we afraid? He says, of course we're afraid. Of course we're fearful. Yes. But we just wanted to not, I didn't want to let the other men down. I didn't want to let the other men down. I wanted to do my job. And I didn't want to let my, my commander down. The guy was serving along with me. In the letter to Ephesians here, in many ways, we see Paul acting like a NCO, non-commissioned officer, a guy who's there in some ways. He, but he is a commissioned officer, isn't he? Commissioned by the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who's urging believers in their mission for Christ, in their unity for Christ, in their love for each other as we have a common enemy, a common mission, a common commander. In the letter to the Ephesians, there are 41 imperatives. Imperatives are, are commands or shoulds or oughts. Indicatives are statements of fact. And so, so when we often, Kenny talked about this last week, it, we have imperatives, these commands, you should do something, indicatives, uh, statements of fact. This is how it actually is. And so we often, as we uh, do hermeneutics and look at Scripture, we look at imperatives and indicatives, and we don't get those confused. When the letter to the Ephesians, there's 41 imperatives, 41 shoulds, or 41 commands. In chapter 1 to 3, there's one, only one imperative. Remember. Chapter 1 to 3 is all, all indicatives, statements of fact, statements of doctrine. This is how it is. This is who you are. This is who God is. This is who Christ is. Let me help us think about indicatives and imperatives for a minute. God is love is an indicative. It's a statement of fact. Love your neighbor is an imperative. God is love, statement of fact. Love your neighbor, an imperative. We love because he first loved us. All Christian deeds rest on Christian doctrine. All imperatives are grounded in indicatives. All shoulds or commands are grounded in doctrine, in, in fact, in objective reality. The first three chapters of Ephesians are full of profound Christian doctrine. We've spent our time there these last few weeks, haven't we, or months. It's full of profound Christian doctrine. The doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of adoption, of redemption, the doctrine of the incarnation, the doctrine of sovereignty, the truth of the resurrection, of regeneration, of substitutionary atonement, the mystery of the gospel, the unity of the church, all these grand and profound and beautiful and God-glorifying doctrines Paul paints for us in a grand display of God's incredible goodness. Every spiritual blessing Paul displays for us in chapters 1 through 3. And then, as if he can't handle it, he burst into grand doxology. 
He tells us in chapters 1 through 3, this is God, this is Christ, this is the Spirit, this is what He's done, this is what you have, this is your spiritual blessing in Christ. And then, and then Ephesians 3, 20, 21, he says, Now to him who is able to do more, far, far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Doctrine then doxology, and then deeds. Doctrine, this is who we are. This is who God is. Doxology, we praise Him for all His greatness and goodness, and then deeds. Paul takes a breath and begins as he turns to the last three chapters in Ephesians. And what follows is this transition, which begins with a plea. We're going to see this today in three, three points. The plea to walk worthily. The way to walk worthily. The reasons to walk worthily. So let's get started. And our prayer today is that your walk will be worthy of your calling. Look at 4 verse 1 again. Paul begins here, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul, Paul urges them. He pleads with them. And he begins, notice, he begins by telling the Ephesians that he is a prisoner for the Lord. I, Paul, as a prisoner for the Lord, he himself knows that walking in a worthy manner, is costly. He tells them up front, I'm, I'm walking this way, I have a worthy walk, and because of my worthy walk, I'm in prison. And I encourage you to walk worthy as well. Paul could easily have said to them, your worthy walk is, is worth me being in prison. And your worthy walk may cause you to be in prison. He could have said this, my freedom in Christ is worth all of my physical freedom in this world. Look at me. Look at what it's cost me. Therefore, you walk worthily as well. In other places, he tells his young protege, follow me as I follow Christ. So he urges them, I therefore, the therefore is going off of first chapters 1, 2, and 3. All that doctrine is there, and then therefore I turn to this transition to say, it's now time for me to help you, to tell you to walk the way you should walk, to live the way you should live. All through Ephesians, this term walk is used. Paul uses it uh, seven or eight times in the book. Listen to these uh, verses that talk about walking. Uh, chapter 2, 1 and 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We'll come to that later. Ephesians 2, 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God pre prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 4, 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Ephesians 5.2 And walk in love 
as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5.8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Ephesians 5.15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. What is all this talk of walking? What Paul is talking about when he's talking about walking is is living. It's an illustration for living. It's an analogy for the way I live, the way I go about my life. Walking signifies living, moving, direction, and purpose. Walking signifies living, moving, direction, and purpose. And Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He could easily have said, I urge you to live the way you should live, the way that you've been called, worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What does that mean? To walk in a manner worthy of my calling. I understand walking, I understand living, but what does it mean to to, to live in such a way or to walk in such a way in a manner that's worthy of my calling. The word that's translated here, root, I'm I'm sorry, root, back up. The root word, worth, the word that's translated worth, where we get the word worthy, has the root meaning of balancing the scales. So we think about these scales, we've seen them, right? You you put something on this side and and we're balancing these scales. What is on one side of the scale should be equal in weight to what is on the other side. The word came to be applied to anything that was expected to correspond to something else. A person is worthy of his day's wages if his work corresponds to his pay. You've heard this sermon, you're not worthy of your salt. He's not worth his salt. He's not worth his pay. Those two things need to correspond. As believers, our walk, our daily living should correspond to our calling. It should match. Our living should match our doctrine. Our breathing, our thinking, our walking, our doing, our loving should match our doctrine. So what is this calling that we should be worthy of, that we should walk worthy of. Paul has helped us in chapter 2 of the same epistle, so let's turn back there and look. We covered this a few months back, but let's, we're thinking now, what does it mean, what is this calling that he's referring to? What does it mean to be called, and what is this calling? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once, what? Walked. That's how you used to live. It's how you used to breathe and think and act. Following your direction, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So all of us at one time were walking in a certain way. Paul tells us that kind of walking was dead walking. We were (laughs) the walking dead. And you've heard me say it before, and others say, really, really, zombies are really a Christian metaphor for those who are ruled by their passions. They're not free. They're, they're enslaved to their desires, to their passions, to their walking death. Paul tells us that was the kind of walking we were doing, dead walking. It was, can I make this up my own word here, trespassful walking. When you trespass, you go across a boundary that you're not meant to trespass. You're not meant to go over there. You're trespassing. You shouldn't go here. But before Christ, before Christ got a hold of us, we were walking in that way, going places we shouldn't go. We were trespassing. We were sinful walking. It was also, we were, we were following the course of the world. The pattern of our living was that way. That was the course we were following Uh, We were also following a person. Who were we following at that time? The prince of the power of the air. Who's that? Satan. It was also a living that was deadly. We were living for the passions of our flesh. We were living for the desires of our corrupt mind and our corrupt body. And Paul sums that total depravity up this way. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's why we embrace that doctrine we refer to as total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean you're as bad as you can possibly be. But it means that every bit of me, every, my mind, my flesh, my passions, my will, are all corrupted by the sinful nature. And Paul sums up that by saying, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's a pretty bad diagnosis, isn't it? But then we have one of the two most precious and beautiful words in all of Christian literature, in all of the Bible, these two words, but God. But God. Then God called. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages we might show, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And he says it again, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, what? Walk in them. We were called from death to life. That's our calling. We were called from death to life. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So this gospel that Paul is preaching here in Corinthians, he's talking about, it's a, it's a folly, it's a, it's a stumbling block both to Jews and to Gentiles. Jews are saying, this can't be the Messiah. Greeks or, or, or those who are wise are saying, a man can't rise from the dead. They both stumble over this. But then he says this, but to those who are called. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, to those who believe to those who respond to this call of Christ, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Again, there we see God's call, a call from death to life. Romans 8, 28 to 30, this passage we refer to most, uh, many theologians refer to as the golden chain of grace or the golden chain of salvation. Listen, he talks about the calling here. And we know that those who love God, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see, that's why we have assurance of salvation, because each of those things are linked completely together. That's why we call them the golden chain. If you are predestined, you've been called. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. What is glorification? Final glorification, we're going to be where? Heaven, right? If you're glorified, you've been predestined, you've been called, you've been justified, you will be glorified. So the act of God's calling. Here's what John Piper, here's how he defines calling. He says, the act of calling is God's raising spiritual dead people to life and faith through the gospel. The act of calling is God raising spiritually dead people to life and faith through the gospel. One of the greatest illustrations of this calling is, is given by Jesus in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, Jesus gets the call that his good friend Lazarus is ill. Lazarus, ter uh, Jesus tarries and doesn't rush straight away there. And while he tarries, what happens to Lazarus? Lazarus dies. Lazarus dies. He gets there. He's met by Martha. She says, you know, Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And there's an exchange. And then Jesus says this beautiful, amazing thing that we need to listen to today. If you are not yet to put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus says to her, I am the 
resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, physically, right? Yet shall he live. And everyone who believes, who lives and believes in me, shall never die. Do you believe this? She answered, Yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. The question is for us today, that same question, we have to pause and ask you that as well. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus goes to the tomb. He tells them to move the stone away. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> I don't know if you, we can feel their, their, their embarrassment. Odd, awkward family situations. A funeral. It'd be like, I, I can't even, I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe if, if we showed up to a closed casket maybe and said, you know, as the pastor, open the casket. You know, oh, pastor, no, we... We've decided to have a closed casket. You're like, no, open the casket. You know, like, oh. Jesus shows up and says, roll the stone away. And his sister's like, Lord, he's been there for four days. It's, there's an odor. There's an odor. Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I think that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. This is the calling of God. God, what God commands, what God commands, he creates. What God commands, he creates. God says to the darkness, let there be light, and there is. God says to the dead, let there be life, and there is. Like the Ephesians, you have been called from death to life. God commanded it, and he created it, and indeed, you then, if you believe these things, you are saved. God, God creates what he commands. And so Paul then says to the Ephesians, and he says to us, walk worthy of your calling. You're not dead any longer. Stop living like it. You're alive in Christ by the power of the Spirit. Walk that way. Can you imagine if Lazarus comes out, they say, take off the grave clothes. They take them off, right? And then later at his house... You know, he's in the closet one day and he's looking. He's like, oh, look, I found my own grave clothes, you know. Let me try these on, see if they still fit, you know, right? 
Sometimes we do that, don't we? We're living people. We're full of life. We've been given new life in the Spirit. We're, we're alive in Christ. And then one day you're rummaging through your closet and you're like, oh, look, my old grave clothes. What if they still fit? You put, hey, they do. They still fit. And you walk out and your wife says, what are you doing? You stink. That stinks. Take those off. Take those off. You're no longer dead. You're alive in Christ. That's what Paul is doing when he urges them to walk in a manner worthy with their calling. You're no longer dead people. You're alive. Live like it. Walk like it. Well, point number two, how? How do we walk this way? The way to walk worthily, verses 2 and 3. Paul helps the Ephesians. He helps us as well because he says, here's how you should walk. With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Remember that in our specific context here, Paul is talking to Jews and Gentiles, and he's been encouraging them and showing them how they are one in Christ. They have been now unified in, uh, in, in Christ through the Spirit because God is now their, their Father. And he says, look, you need to, when you walk together, you need to walk this way. Walk with humility. Walk with humility. The Christian's humility comes from knowing from whence he was called. You have to stop every once in a while and look back and go, I was dead. I was dead. I'm not all that. I was dead. I was a sinner. I was a trespasser. And so that will humble us. I was dead. I was depraved. I had nothing good in myself for which I could cause God to choose me. Humility first come from a deep appreciation of who I truly am before Christ. I'm a sinner. Listen to what Jesus says when he gives this parable, Luke 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In this context, Jews and Gentiles both must come in humility and stand at the level ground that is the foot of the cross. The same is true of each of us, brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, pastors and deacons, members workers, moms, children, everybody. We come and stand at that ground that is level at the foot of the cross, all sinners. We come in humility. 
Humility also must have a deep understanding of who God is. The sovereign God of the universe, the only true and living God, has called you to be His child. So humility begins when we understand God is God and I am not. God is God and I am not. Gentleness then. He says gentleness after humility. Humility always produces gentleness or meekness. And meekness is one of the surest signs of true humility. You cannot possess gentleness or meekness without humility. And you cannot possess meekness with pride. And so because of our humility, then we come and we're, we're gentle. And this is, this is an area that all of us need to grow in. I especially need to grow in this area of gentleness. It doesn't mean that we can't instruct people and exhort people in their sin and call them and, and be serious about those things. But still, we must come with humility and gentleness. Jesus says, blessed are the gentle, Matthew 5, 5. To describe Jesus' own character, he says, I am gentle. And gentleness, we know, is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Colossians, 1, uh, Colossians 3, 12 says this, Put on then as God's chosen, holy, uh, chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Patience. Patience is an attitude that is an outgrowth of humility and gentleness. It means literally long-tempered or long-suffering. Uh, most of you, I'm sure none of you ever struggle with patience on the 405. When you're driving and that guy's not going to let you merge. You're saying, merge, everybody, merge, and you're trying to merge and they won't let you in. It's hard to be long-suffering, to be long-tempered. But the patient Christian suffers long with others. He bears with them. He puts up with them. His temper does not flare. The patient person has a long temperament, not a short temperament. The patient Christian understands this primarily and profoundly. He understands that God has been patient with him. And so he must be patient with others. Back to our verse, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, bearing with one another. For the Ephesians, in the context of this letter, and the encouragement of Paul, Jewish believers must bear with Gentile believers, and Gentile believers must bear with Jewish believers, as both regard their sinful backgrounds with humility and remembering how gentle their Lord Jesus is and what patience God has had with them, not willing that any of them was would perish, they must bear with each other, and so must we. And so must we. We must bear with one another. We must be humble toward each other. We must be gentle. We must be patient, bearing with each other. And then Paul says this, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Here we really move into into uh, sanctification, into, into working with the Spirit. We have been saved. We have the Spirit. But here he says we should maintain. Maintain means maintenance. I need to change the oil in my car. I need to maintain it to keep it running well. I need to take good care of it. I've got to check the tires. I've got to do certain things. If I don't maintain my car, it's going to fall apart. And so here we have to maintain our walk with the Lord. Maintain it. Do maintenance on our walk. 
1 Corinthians 12, 13 says this, we, uh, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink one spirit. We all have the spirit of Christ. We all have the Holy Spirit, the, the third person of the Trinity. Ephesians 2, 19-22 says, In him also you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so Paul is telling the Ephesians, both Jews and Gentiles, you have this spirit, so live like it. We look, we, we look now at our third, our third point, number three. Number three, the reason to walk worthily. The reason to walk worthily, or we could call this really the why. We could say verse one, the what. What is the doctrine, right? Number, well, the what, the, the how, and the why. The reasons to walk worthily. Look at chapter or verse uh, verse four. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul here goes back to rock solid doctrine, objective reality, to ground the plea for the Ephesians to walk in a worthy manner. It's almost like he can't, he can't keep going forward with just his imperatives or his shoulds. He has to go back and, and go back to doctrine again to remind them. How, how are they going to maintain this, 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 this spirit of unity, this, this, this unity in the spirit? Why should they do this? How do they do this? Well, the why is simply this. He reminds them, first of all, there is one body. One body comprised of all believers in Christ, Jew and Gentile. There's not two separate bodies, the Jewish body and the Gentile body. There's one body in Christ. We are one people in Christ. Uh, one new, we're new citizens. A new, a new ethnicity. Christian. That's who we are in Christ. One person in Christ. One body comprised of all believers. Number two, there's one spirit the third person of the Trinity who's caused us to be born again, to be regenerated. So we all have one spirit. We have one hope, he tells them. Ephesians 1.18 says this, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? We have one hope. There's not a hope for the Jews and a hope for the Gentiles. Uh, there's, not a, there's not a hope for the, for the inner city person and a hope for the suburban person, a hope for this person, a hope for that person, a hope for the rich and a hope for the poor. There is one hope, one hope for us all. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our salvation, our home in heaven, that's our hope. Fourth, one Lord, one Lord. There's one ruler. There's one ruler over us all, all Jews, all Gentiles who are believers in Christ. We have one Lord, one faith. One faith, there's only one way to be justified, by faith alone. There's not a way for Jews to be justified and a way for Gentiles to be justified. There is one faith, one faith only. By faith alone we're saved. One baptism. There's not a separate ritual for Jews, a separate ritual for Gentiles. Paul is telling the Ephesians, we have one baptism, one way of showing our profession of faith in Christ, one rite, R-I-T-E, that we come and we show that we put our hope and trust in Christ. And finally, one God and Father. One God and Father. We have one Father. We were all predestined to adoption. And so we're all now children of one Father who is overall. And our Father is, is sovereign. Our Father is 
through us, Paul tells us. He is working through us. He is in us. He is working with us. He's through us in the church, and he's working through his church, and he is in us as his dwelling place. He's over all. He's through all. He's in all. He's, he's surrounded us. He's wrapped us. I can't think of a big, gigantic, cosmic hug. I don't know how else to say this incredible, incredible, profound doctrine. And because of all these things, then, we are one in Christ, one with our Father, one in the Spirit, and we're commanded to walk worthily in this way. There aren't two promises, two lords, two hopes. There's one hope for all who are in Christ. Paul reminds us of that. I can't help but think of, of times when growing up we would leave some person's house and every once in a while when you're little kids, right, you go over to visit someone in the church or some, some neighbor, some friend. And as little kids, we'd be there and, and those other kids didn't always have the same standard necessarily maybe of behavior that, that, uh, that we had. And those kids are doing something. They're popping off. They're talking back. They're yelling. They're arguing. They're doing things. And on the way home, we'd get in the car, and my dad would always say the same thing. We'd be driving back to our house, and he would say something like this. So, did you notice how those kids were acting? <laughs> yes, Dad. With, you know, myself, my brother, my sister. Yes, Dad, we did notice. Do we act like that? <laughs> no, Dad, we don't act like that. Why don't we act that way? Because we're Brian's. That's right, you are. You're Brian's. And what else? We're Christians. That's right. We're Christians. We don't walk that way. Our Heavenly Father, we're children. We're children physically of Garen Bryan. He's our Father. He loves us. He cares for us. He urges us to walk in a manner worthy of our name. Yes, you're Brian, but even more profoundly, you're a Christian. This is how we walk. And Paul here as the commanding officer, the boots on the ground, is saying to all of us, not just a band of brothers, but to, but to a family of God, as a family of God, walk this way. Walk this way. You used to walk in death. Now you're alive. Now you're alive. Live like it. Live like it. Live like it. Let's just finish before we pray, looking again at this passage. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Father, we thank you for your word today. What a profound and wonderful transition in this epistle to the Ephesians as we move from the grand and glorious doctrines of the first three chapters to to Paul's charge to us, his command to us to, to walk, to walk like living people, 
Lord, you know how often we find those old grave clothes and we slip them back on. But we know, Lord, that because of your spirit, we can't keep those on. We must take those off and live as alive people. Lord, thank you for our life in Christ. Thank you for our encouragement to be eager to maintain this unity with each other because we are all on the same team, part of the same family. Lord, we are your family, family of God. Help us, Father, to live for you every day. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.